0: You're listening to The Booking Club with Jack Aldane The podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators From a table at their favourite places to eat and drink On this first episode of 2023 I'm speaking to Sam McAllister Author of the best-selling book Scoops Behind the scenes of the BBC's most shocking interviews
1: the devil as
0: the dirty gin martini arrives <laughs> gives me great pleasure to introduce sam McAllister, author of the best-selling book scoops here we are the wolseley does
1: life get any better jack
0: you tell me because i sensed this was your favorite restaurant but i also felt like i pushed you into accepting this as the place to meet because i i was keen for us to meet here too
1: you didn't have to push very hard <laughs> and very hard. to be clear it's my dirty door. gin martini not yours and it looks absolutely mesmerizingly gorgeous So I do apologise if, as we proceed, I become a little less clear in my language as the gin hits.
0: A lot of your followers on Twitter will know that you frequent the Wolseley fairly often. I I do. Um, Guilty. uh, But I'll leave it to you to explain your relationship to this place. Yeah. What's the story between you and the Wolseley?
1: The story between us is a lovely friendship. And for people who've read the book, you'll know that I'm kind of working class made good. And there's something about this place that makes you feel welcome regardless of who you are. I've had some tough times financially, bringing up a kid on my own on, obviously a high income in comparison to quite a number of people in this country, but not a huge income. And this would be the place I could still come, maybe have a scone, the cheapest person here. It's a wonder they let me in. Maybe one scone, a martini, maybe a piece of carrot cake and a margarita and feel all right, feel safe and they treat me just as nicely as when I come with a famous friend or a wealthy friend or with my auntie Rita or, you know, with my mum or my son. And there are very few places like that, I think, in London, and that's why I love it so.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the couple of years you've just had. Pretty tumultuous, (laughs) yes, take the first sip. (laughs) How have you found adjusting from behind the camera to being much more out in front?
1: Well, it's such an interesting adjustment. I think the common... Preconception and stereotype is that everybody wants to be in front of the camera. Everyone wants to be famous. Everyone wants to be the presenter. Now in, in my case, of my background's criminal defence barrister, so I've always done oratory and I was on air at Radio 4, but that wasn't my gig, that wasn't my thing, because I've seen what it's like. I know what it's like to have no privacy, particularly in the modern age, the way that you know women are treated in the digital age, that kind of thing. So Although it might be counterintuitive, I'm reluctant to come into any kind of small, tiny, minuscule spotlight. And so that actually was the thing that worried me or kept me from doing the book in the first place. But then at one stage, I was like, you know, this is my tiny little piece in history the history of broadcasting, the history of the monarchy, the history of scoops. And I just wanted to get it down for posterity. And so the BBC weren't comfortable with me writing the book. Um, what can you say? And so I had to choose am I going to stay and be dissatisfied that I didn't tell this tale? Or shall I take a risk on myself and shall I write a book, having never written one before, no biggie, in three months from scratch? And here we are, it's been a roller coaster.
0: You mentioned there that you've never felt comfortable being in the spotlight. This book is very much not necessarily to promote yourself, but actually to promote producers. What sort of fan mail have you received ever since?
1: Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, that was really one of the things that was important to me. I've been accused um, of being a hype woman and you know, the way that they describe people who are putting themselves out and kind of like hyping up their own achievements and the reason I was a hype woman, and that was a fair, a fair description of me, was because there just isn't the credit given to producers for the work that they do. The things that you see out there that fantastic presenters and correspondents do are brilliant and incredible, but there's a story behind them. And the story is often extremely hard work by researchers, producers, camera people, editors. And that finished product is just a very small part of the tale. And so for me... I have been, luckily, incredibly well-received by producers around the world who send me secret messages with sadly tales of woe, of how they've been ignored, overlooked, underappreciated, that their work has been erased. And without our work being spoken about and our names attached to it, we have nothing. Because what is my CV if I hadn't hyped myself? If I hadn't told you that I was involved in these interviews, that I worked on them, that I helped organise them, that I was a part of them, you wouldn't know I exist. And that is a common tale for most producers in this country. So producers I'm very popular with. I'm not so sure I'm so popular with some of the people in front of the camera who probably are a bit uncomfortable with my view that we should share credit because there's enough for everyone.
0: I'm also interested to know about the split between those who felt this book helped restore faith in the media, understanding what goes on behind the scenes, and then possibly those who might have felt even more alienated from the media, seeing how the sausage gets made, so to speak.
1: Yeah, you see, I think that there is actually something fundamental here that is important. To be pretentious for a moment, you know, we live in a time of great distrust, and distrust in the media is the highest it's ever been. We don't, Believe correspondents and journalists. We don't trust what people are saying. We are worried, we're concerned, we are caring about conspiracies. You know, there are lots of influences. Now, for me, this is a very simple proposition. The more we tell you, the viewer, the listener, the consumer, about how things actually work, the more we build a relationship of trust. So, on a pretentious level, this isn't just about, hey, I'm Sam McAllister, let me tell you about the work that I've done on behalf of myself and other producers, it is also on the macro scale, something profoundly important about people understanding what goes into an interview. Are there conditions or not? Are there conversations about what can be asked and what can't? Who makes decisions about what's asked and what isn't? Who forms the questions? How did this interview happen? Does the presenter know this person? Did they, for example, go to their wedding? (coughs) Mm -hmm. Did they not? Are they friends with them from school? Are they not? All of these factors, I think, are hugely fundamental and important to restoring in one small way the conversation of trust because the more I tell you, the more you trust me. And the format of the less I tell you, the more exciting and glamorous it seems. It's over. And I don't think we should be doing that anymore. Of course that benefits me and other producers and Behind the scenes, people, but I think it's also on the macro level fundamental to rebuilding or repairing trust with the listeners and viewers.
0: I found this book to be very relatable in parts, particularly when you describe the adrenaline and the rush towards a deadline. The word deadline, actually, I learned today, comes from uh, the line that's drawn around a prison, past which if an inmate were to cross, they'd get shot.
1: Well, it feels that way sometimes, I have to be honest. Well, it does,
0: doesn't it? Anyway. what did this job teach you about power?
1: What's so interesting about the experience I've had, and I don't want to go on about class, because it's, it, in a sense, it's kind of, you know, I'm middle class now, I know that and I accept that, but I came from market background. You know, my granddad was meat and fish, we were sprats and shanks. Um, first to go to university, every cliche applies, You know, my cousin doesn't really read or write properly, you know, born and died in the same house. My auntie Rita had a job at Peter Jones. It was the most exciting thing that had ever happened. So my parents, both phenomenally clever, but left school at 14 and 15 for reasons of needing to earn money. You know, that was the background I came from. And I had no relationship with power. I didn't understand it. And my experience in education, learning to be... A barrister. Um, I'd never met a lawyer until I became one. So a bit ambitious, probably. Uh, My relationship with the media, I never worked in news until, you know, Newsnight. I'd never worked in journalism until I accidentally ended up at Radio 4. Baptism after fire. But the thing that I found so interesting was that my relationship with power is so different from many of my contemporaries. And I think it's the secret to my success. I don't do deference. I don't care if you're worth a billion or you're worth a quid. My only question is, um, I'll be careful, I don't want to cause offense, are you an a-hole? That's what I was taught growing up. The measure of you is your humanity, not your, whether you can quote Catullus, whether you know stuff about Sophocles. I thought Oxbridge was a place. I didn't realize so many of the codes of power around me. And the thing I learned quite early on, which I think is hugely helpful, is that lots of the power is built on sand. And if you're in meetings, and people use big words, and they talk about undersecretaries of this and that, they give an amazing impression of intellect. And they define what intellect is, who gets power, who gets influence, and who is valued. And I just wasn't interested in any of those values. Now... It's adversely affected me in terms of my progression, I would say, because I wouldn't buy into it. But I learned so much about power and how it's a creation, a chimera. And once you know that, you have so much power yourself because you don't conform to it, which unsettles many people in power, but I feel was the secret to my success because I speak truth to power because I don't disrespect it, but I don't respect it.
0: Your irreverence was useful in the very early stages of working at Newsnight (laughs) because it allowed you to lure a lot of the potential interviewees on that programme into a sense that they were in safe hands.
1: I completely agree with you. I mean, my mum taught me, you're better than no one and no one's better than you, uh, said with a cockney accent. Uh, and, And I really carried that with me in the nicest possible way. You know, So whether you're the CEO of a major global company, whether you're Sir Philip Green, whether you're Prince Andrew, whether you're Justin Trudeau, whoever you are, I take as I find. I know it sounds like a cliché, but so few people do that. The system in this country of education and of hierarchy makes people deferential, and it's fake. So you turn up, and if you are a certain age and a certain class, and you went to a certain school and they have a certain level of power and money, you behave towards them in a way that society has taught you to behave. I have not been taught those lessons. And I've seen them, but I don't care for them. So if you are Sir Philip Green or a member of the royal family, you've probably not been spoken to the way that I speak to you, not disrespectfully, but you're no better than me. And I think that is a real source of success for me because I would treat people as equals because I considered them equals. And I found it strange, this idea that we should be deferential and you know kind of treat people as if they are something better than us because that's not how I was brought up
0: when Jody comes back we'll maybe order some lunch but since he's busy <laughs> he's avoiding we'll...
1: us since we chatted but look I've got lunch there's three olives in
0: this that's lunch at least two of your five a day um <laughs> In one chapter, you describe the process of getting anything commissioned at the BBC as being long, arduous and frustrating and mention that there have been times when you found it impossible not to let that show. Uh, Was there ever a time when you got as close as you would ever get to walking out?
1: (laughs) I literally walked out one day. Look, the classic example which I mention in the book is that there was what I would call a news no-brainer. We had the option, I had the option, I'd spent a lot of time creating this option, of the the sportsman, the African-American brilliant sportsman Dennis Rodman. One of the most interesting firebrands in the world. Genuinely brilliant television. Add to that, he'd just come back from North Korea, where he had forged an unlikely and strange friendship with the great leader. I may or may not have had access to photos that the world had never seen, I can't confirm or deny that they involved a hot tub. That was the situation. He'd come back from this meeting with with Kim Jong-un. He was offering me his first ever interview and added to that, it was going to be live from Vatican City. It is basically the paradigm of the perfect news interview.
0: And then what happened?
1: The person who was above me said no. I fought. I argued with her. She's a fantastic editor, but she was completely wrong on this in my belief. And I walked out. I was like, I can't do this anymore. If you will not put Dennis Rodman talking about Kim Jong-un with photos that the world has never seen, talking about geopolitics and giving us an insight that our viewers, despite, you know, it not being someone from a think tank or who is talking about Catullus, who has direct experience of having been in that extraordinary country, if you will not put that on television, why am I even here? And I, and I walked out. And a very lovely colleague of mine, James Clayton, who's still at the BBC, walked around and round the BBC with me for 20 minutes, talking me off the cliff. And in that moment, I was like, why am I even here? If I provide you with this and you say no, what's the point? And of course, then I grew up and I came back to my desk. But I don't do bitter, I don't do angry, I don't do regret, but that still hurts.
0: I found the chapter on celebrity culture particularly interesting and the anecdote you've just given there, albeit involving a different boss, sits almost completely askew with the other example where a celebrity was pitched as the perfect interview.
1: You're talking about Amy Schumer, right?
0: Indeed, yeah. (laughs) It's a chapter that demonstrates how entertainers are increasingly imagined to be people's preferred choice of political commentary. That's right. Is there any truth to that? Or do you think this is more an illusion created by social media that in practice does more harm than good to public discourse and understanding?
1: I I think it does great harm to public discourse. No disrespect to some of the brilliant, generous people who have come on the programme Um, who are actors and actresses, who are, you know, creatives, who are artists. But the problem that I would face as an interviews producer, which actually Dennis Rodman was on the other side of, because he had direct experience. He was unique. He had had a unique experience of dealing with that particular individual. And the insights he could give on them were geopolitical. They were economic. They were sociopolitical. They were news. And that's the word that I always use, news. Putting the news into news like my friend used to say about me. Now, if you take, for example, and I feel so sad that I keep mentioning poor Amy Schumer, who's a brilliant comedian, but if you take a celebrity, a Kim Kardashian, who I have a lot of time for, you know, they have very interesting things that they've done. They're hardworking individuals and they're doing very well in their chosen profession. But the obsession with celebrity means that if one of those individuals has a book or... They have a film coming then we as news producers ask ourselves a passive question the passive question is are they famous enough to have on my program now that's not the question i ask i ask an active question what do you learn from this individual if i have them on the program that justifies them being on the program now usually the answer is oh they're famous that's not an answer The answer is, is there something that they can cast light on that is different and unique that nobody else could cast light on? It's horrible to see Kim Kardashian or Amy Schumer being asked about the situation in Afghanistan. I mean, it's not their expertise and it's not appropriate and it creates bad journalism and it gives too much impact to the words that they say when people who are actually experts don't receive coverage. And that's my discomfort with it. It's bad for them, it's bad for us, and it's bad for you, the viewer or the listener, because you learn nothing and they don't have particular expertise. So it it undermines the credibility of the conversation, in my view.
0: And as the transcripts of that interview or the excerpts of it that you've put in the book shows, there was very little in there. In fact, you were struggling in the end to find the headline, which is a theme throughout the book. Every interview that you've landed, you're there... Behind the camera, trying to get the headline on which to run the story. I can't remember what the headline was after all. I think it was that Amy Schumer was threatening to move to Spain if Trump won That's right, in which 2016. Of course she didn't. No, exactly.
1: <laughs> and there's the rub
0: Amal Rajan who I think yesterday said that he was stepping down as BBC media editor, tweeted recently about the relationship, the sacred relationship between the reporter and the producer. I retweeted them all. And he said in one of these tweets, the bond between reporter and producer often generates the magic of great TV news. That heroic war reporter in a flak jacket seen ducking gunfire, that's often a producer just out of shot. That amazing access to a COVID ward, a producer fixed that. That stunning piece of camera atop a skyscraper, a producer filled the necessary forms giving them just a bit more public recognition should be possible. Are subtle credits on screen at the end of packages too much to ask? Viewers would cope. We'll come back to all of that, but let's talk about the big one, Prince Andrew. What can we say that hasn't been said already? <laughs> you know, the gagging clause used in his settlement with one of Jeffrey Epstein's accusers, Virginia Gouffre, is due to expire this month, so who knows what will come of that. Um, but when you reflect on the train wreck of that interview... The interview, which still makes people more embarrassed to watch, I think, than it ever made Prince Andrew to actually (laughs) give. What do you think was the fundamental mistake he and his team made going in?
1: I don't think he had hope for two reasons. The first thing to say is that obviously people assume that I want people to fail in interviews, and that's not the case. The relationship with a producer and people that they negotiate with is obviously long, and it's quite personal, it's quite intimate. You're not looking for them to fail but you're going to give them a fair time. And the problem that Prince Andrew had, I've called it the royal delusion. I'm not looking to be disrespectful towards him or disparaging towards him, towards his intellect or his capabilities. But factually, this is the most extreme example of unfettered power and unfettered flattery. If you take the average CEO, he or she has yes people around them who tell them that they're amazing, amazing, amazing. And they have no one around them who has either the kahunas or the capability, because they will lose their job, to tell them anything different. Prince Andrew is the most extreme example of that. You know, the second child, clearly the most beloved from what we can tell. Yes,
0: the Queen's favourite.
1: Exactly. Treated as if he was a little god. The spare, we all know what that means, you know, seeing Harry and his behaviours and issues and problems. The psychology of the spare. Also, factually, you know, somebody who was able to uh, enjoy the company of extremely attractive women, often of his own age, to be fair. Uh, but, you know, he was in the Navy. He was a prince. He could do anything he liked. And someone who, unlike the rest of us, has never worried about his energy bill or getting sacked or having nowhere to live or feeding his kids. So the extreme... Or
0: organising a straightforward shooting. At...
1: Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Whenever he could give a good answer, he always went for the worst possible one. And, and that's exactly it. You know, it was the... The 59 years leading up to that interview were what meant he was incapable of doing a good interview. There was nothing advisors could have done. There was nothing they could have said. There was no rehearsal in the world, no genius in the world, no advice in the world that would have stopped that cataclysmic event, in my view.
0: That was partly because they, too, were under the spell of the royal delusion, right? I mean they you, you seem drink the
1: Kool-Aid, don't you? I mean, they you, seem to think you, the
0: interview went as well as he thought it did.
1: I don't know that they thought that. I know that he thought it went well. Amanda Thirsk, who was his chief of staff, with whom I had a, a very a great professional relationship, who I'm still in touch with, for whom I have the utmost respect, and the reason is this... I'm used to being second-in-command, third-in-command, tenth-in-command. I've never been in command until now, in terms of my tiny little CEO of this tiny little new freelance life that I'm living. I know what second-in-command feels like, and it feels like this. You can do anything, say anything, be the best that you are. But if they're a bomb, and they're waiting to go off, your job is literally to reduce the impact of the shrapnel. And that is all you can do. If people think that somebody who is second in command, who is a member of staff, however brilliant they are, or experienced, or, you know, good at their job, or however close the relationship is, if they think that they can get a member of the royal family to behave in a certain way, you are completely, fundamentally incorrect. And whatever she did, or whatever training he received, or whatever advice he was given, the second the cameras went on,
0: it was freefall, And you're quite right. The moment the cameras went off, those smiles around the room could have been smiles of awkwardness for all we know. Could have been smiles of I'm not sorry. really knowing quite how it went. The experience you had standing behind the camera watching that interview play out, it's detailed incredibly well in the book. But could you, for the sake of the listeners, take us through what you were thinking and seeing and seeing of other people watching as it unfolded?
1: Well, I was 15 feet behind his chair, so I saw the back of him. So the time at which you watched the interview for the first time was the first time I saw his face, because I didn't watch the edit. It's a bit like, I don't want to be glib, a Craig David song. We did the final negotiation on the Monday. Right. They said yes on the Tuesday. They wanted to do the interview on the Wednesday. We ended up doing it on the Thursday. We tweeted about it on the Friday, and then it went out on the Saturday. So... I was face to face with him on Monday. I sat behind his chair on Thursday, and in that room, what's interesting about being the interviews producer, it's a bit like being a surrogate in a sense. You carry the baby for nine months, and then you give it to new parents. And the parents on that day were the brilliant Emily Maitlis doing her brilliant interview, and Stuart McLean, the now editor of Newsnight, who was the exec. Another colleague, Jake Morris, who had been working on kind of like the research and production. I'm, in a sense, the only passive person in the room. And I'm sitting there, listening to that, with my dual head of ex-criminal barrister, who knows that everything he's saying is potentially extremely disadvantageous to him, and my head as news journalist just literally... I've won the jackpot here. Every answer is news gold. And the experience was very surreal, because... Most of the time you guys watch interviews or listen to them, you know the shtick. People turn up, they say things they don't really believe, they say what they have to say, it's the government line, it's the party line, they've been told what to do and what to say. They are not genuine, sincere, or real. And whatever was wrong with Prince Andrew's interviews, that was unfettered, real, true as far as he was concerned, because he clearly believed what he was saying, and it was genuine and unfettered in a way that we just don't see anymore. So sitting there behind him in Buckingham Palace, knowing the possible ramifications of his words, experiencing that as a news journalist and as an ex-barrister and on a human level, it was really mind-blowing.
0: I'm sure you've been asked this many, many times, but when the cameras went off, did you know exactly what you had just witnessed and what it would mean?
1: To me, yes. I didn't think he would step back from public life. That was still a shock to me, you know four mere days later I know Emily said she only realized during the edit what a big deal it was and that's because she was being active so obviously she was lost in adrenaline and brilliance I was lost neither not in brilliance and I was there listening to every word and and I cannot say anything other than the fact that I knew it would be the front page of every paper in the country and possibly the world and I knew what we had
0: do you sometimes wish that you'd booked Prince Harry? No. Have you watched the interview with him?
1: I've watched some excerpts.
0: And what have you made of it?
1: Such a toxic issue now. It's I, I'm almost frightened to, to give, a, give an opinion in truth. L- let me put it this way. The difference between a conversation with Prince Andrew and with Prince Harry, no judgement on Harry or the rights and wrongs, what a sad state of affairs for a family to be in that, that division coming from an east end family i can tell you that's pretty like low rent in comparison to some of the things that we did but you know it's obviously sad that a family is in pain but they, to me they're polar opposites one is a rigorous interview with an individual who for better or worse gave open honest as far as he was concerned uh, answers to one of the most elite journalists in, in the country prince andrew and and the other feels like a very stage-managed conversation which the relationship to the Andrew interview seems, seems very different and so I would certainly feel a discomfort with the latter that I didn't feel with the former.
0: Do you think there will ever be an interview as explosive as the interview you made happen with Prince Andrew ever again? That is, with somebody who has something to hide, again, the distinction you just made. Might it have simultaneously set the bar for producers and journalists everywhere and ensured that people like Prince Andrew never again agree to interviews like this?
1: I don't think it will ever happen again. And I don't think it would have happened had it not been for some of the other things we've discussed. My lack of deference... Apparently, there are all kinds of uh, structures within the BBC that I should have conformed to some royal officer person that I didn't know existed until I read David Dimbleby's book because I was interviewing him recently about his book. I didn't even know they existed. Some structures and procedures. Every royal correspondent I meet says to me, how did you do that? How did you speak to him like that? I can't believe you did this. I can't believe you did that because the relationship to the royal family has created a particular way of dealing with them as journalists for better or worse, and I didn't know about any of that. My ignorance was my greatest friend, because as far as I was concerned, this was a man with an important story who needed to be held accountable for the actions that he was accused of on a global scale, who happened to be a member of the royal family. But in that sense, he was like so many people that I dealt with, but the stakes for him obviously were incredibly high, and and so it turned out for us. But I don't think an interview like that has ever happened before. People mentioned Diana, but that was a very different type of thing. She was out of the family, and obviously the very terrible way in which Martin Bashir is accused of procuring that interview makes it very distinct from this. The average royal interview is a much more cosy affair, even if it is poking a little bit here and there. I don't feel comfortable with often uh, the level of poking. This was once in a lifetime no rules unfettered very little oversight with someone of the caliber of emily with the newsnight brand the expertise that we brought with the lack of conditions because we don't do conditions it should never have happened and it will never happen again i have i have a terrible confession i gesticulated and knocked my martini all over poor jack Sir.
0: not all over me for the benefit of the listeners <laughs> so I'm, I'm not so here sorry. drenched and smelling of dirty martini so we might need to remedy that I'm afraid we need to need um, another one and I'd like a cappuccino please um, but we'd also like to order lunch yes. I think for me it'll be the fried duck egg bubbling squeak and wild mushrooms
1: and I'll just have a chopped salad please
0: with chicken obviously
1: no allergies
0: likewise <laughs> thank you very much thank you The relationships that you've built up over your career, the good, the mad, bad, dangerous to know, (laughs) etc., they come into your life at various points in relation to other interviews. You got a personal phone call, I think, was it from Philip Green after the Prince Andrew interview, in which he was saying that he really admired the work, but he was also glad that he'd consistently turned your team down. (laughs) How did it feel to receive a personal call from a guy who was essentially gloating that he'd dodged a bullet?
1: (laughs) See, I don't look at it that way. I mean, he was right. No, he was right. It would have been a bad decision for him to do an interview with us. And he made a good decision not to do it. And Prince Andrew was the absolute reason that he could say with certainty that he'd made a very good decision. I thought it was nice of him to give me a call. I mean, I value his phone call no more than, you know, my friend Sarah calling me, who I used to go to school with. I value them both the same. I appreciate them calling me to congratulate me and say nice things. But obviously there was a particular humour in Sir Philip saying, well, you know, I was right. Thank God I didn't do that interview with you and Emily Maitlis. Mm. Um, And there we are. He was entirely correct. It would not have been a good decision for him.
0: Scoops is, above all, a tribute to producers everywhere, not just in the BBC. And you call out the tendency of news outlets to call their producers editorial while reserving words like talent for presenters. What would you like to see change first and foremost about the way producers are regarded and rewarded in the industry? Should it start with more recognition? Should it start with pay? Would one lead to the other?
1: Look, in, in an ideal world, obviously, you'd have more recognition and more pay. But to me, recognition was really the most important thing, and I'll tell you why. If you take the average uh, TV presenter, who, many of whom are very brilliant, they'll be known as the the talent, um, a term that I object to because what's the rest of us the untalented and they'll probably be paid I mean I never earn more than 10% of any of the presenters that I worked for so they're going to be paid a lot of money so they've already got the money and then they get most of the credit now for me the thing about that that's difficult is if you google one of them you can see their CV you can see everything that they've achieved but for those of us who are earning a lot less and who are doing work as part of some of those outcomes we're invisible So what is my CV? What have I achieved? And that, I think, is really problematic because... And that's why I became someone who was like, you know, a hype woman putting out my content on Twitter to my, you know, very generous, like, 15,000 followers or whatever it was, because I wanted to show what I was doing. Because if I don't have that CV of what I've achieved, then A, do I actually exist professionally? And B, how do I use that for future opportunities? And so for me, credit is actually the most important part because the money would follow the credit. If you're able to show I did X, I did Y, I used to keep a list uh, on my, like a Word document with what I would call my gets and I would update it all the time because if I went to a job interview and you didn't know I exist because why would you, what did I actually do? that's what everybody needs to know when you're trying to move around and get new opportunities you have to have what you actually have achieved and done and if I'm invisible how can I enjoy the fruits of my hard work I can't so credit credit is everything to me
0: and the advice that you would give to somebody starting out who's looked at the work you've done and particularly after the release of this book discovering who you are and thinking I want to do that your advice to them what would it be?
1: My advice would be, first of all, be sure of who you are and grow a thick skin. You're going to receive a lot of rejection. 99% of what we do is rejection. And when you get the yes, it's a high, it's an extraordinary high, but you're probably going to be chasing one of those for a very long time. So know who you are. Act with integrity, because wherever you move in the industry, if you've lied once, if you've misled, if you've overpromised and under-delivered, then your name is mud so I always saw myself as the tiny product Sam McAllister aside from the BBC, what do I want my product to look like in terms of how I've behaved, fairness openness, integrity and the third piece of advice I would give is I would say do not accept the norms of the industry in which you are told to be grateful for your name being mentioned in your own work, it's not on And the reason, one of the reasons I did the book, it doesn't come from bitterness or anger. It comes from none of those places. It just comes from the fact that work should be credited and recognized. And this is my tiny way to open the door, I hope, to others being able to do that and feeling comfortable with that conversation. Because I spent many years being told, why are we putting your name on this? You know, it's not important. It is important. And it does matter.
0: Here's another gin martini and a beautiful-looking cappuccino. Thank you very much, Jodie. Thank
1: you. Yeah, I'll try We're not good. to knock that one over.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and as for your product now, this freelance life that you have parachuted down into, where do you see it going? What's on the horizon? Or are you just enjoying a gin martini in the Wolseley on a Tuesday? <laughs> I'm very
1: much enjoying <laughs> a gin martini in the Wolseley on a Tuesday. Thank you very much, Jack. I think it is that my, my personality doesn't really suit the life that I had to lead because I say this with no regret I was bringing up my kid and I needed a stable income it was a lone income situation so I did what I needed to do with an extraordinarily interesting job but I'm not really made for a day-to-day kind of like being told what to do job my dad would laugh who was an entrepreneur if he knew that I had ended up kind of doing that he sadly departed my mum knows that's not really my personality either so to now be I used to say it sounds a bit silly but to be CEO of MEO uh, this tiny little freelance company which doesn't make a ton of money but has some incredible experiences it, it just feels right it feels like coming to the place that I always needed to be because I'm probably a pain in the bum to manage I work very hard but you know I don't really do what I'm told and you don't really know where I am and I don't conform to power and hierarchy so I'm probably a bit of a bit of a pain to the average boss so my current boss doesn't find that problematic she thinks it's wonderful um, because my current boss is me and it feels really lovely to not have to make myself smaller or bring down the alpha female gregariousness the sense of humor my opinions all those things that I had to put in a box for many years rightly or wrongly some of it probably I didn't need to do but I felt that was the way to fit in. Um, and i don't need to fit in anymore and that's a lovely freedom i'm enjoying it cheers to that cheers to that jack
0: sam McAllister, it's been wonderful to book you on the booking club yeah well done and uh <laughs> can't recommend this book highly enough especially to all aspiring journalists whatever area of the industry they're seeking to go into i wish i'd read it before i went into journalism school myself and it gives me a lot of courage and a lot to relate to and i'll be dipping into it i'm sure for many years to come so thank you very much
1: thank you here's to courage jack i appreciate your time Perfect timing. He's
0: coming. Bon appetit.
1: Bon appetit.